you know, globally, we might review 10 or 15 different places on Earth a day that is having some kind of flood event. We can't do all of them at once yet. <laughs> so, so like, what is the most important one? What is the one that can provide the most insight to a community or to a customer or, or whatever the case is? Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. My guest on the show today is Shay Strong. She is the Vice President of Analytics at a company called ISI. And today on the podcast, we're talking about using synthetic aperture radar to monitor flooding and why it's not quite as easy as, as you might think. So Shay's going to talk around some of the challenges there. What do we need to do to create a model, a process that can accurately and consistently do this, monitor flooding and, and give the, the kinds of analytics we need and also what it takes to sell a process like this. How, how do we market it? How do we go out to the market and say, hey, we've got this piece of geospatial magic, please buy it. If synthetic aperture radar or SAR is, is new to you and you want to know a little bit more about what it actually is and, and what it does, go back into the podcast archive and look for an episode called Introduction to Synthetic Aperture Radar. And I think this will give you a really good sort of basic understanding of, of what the technology is and what it can do. Hi Shay, welcome to the podcast. I'm really looking forward to this. We're going to be talking about SAR data and we're going to talk about flooding and why it's a difficult thing to, I guess, monitor flooding using SAR. But I think before we dive into to all those kinds of interesting stuff, perhaps you could just take the time to introduce yourself to the audience, maybe give us an idea of where you are now in terms of your career, how you got there. And yeah, we'll head off into the main topic from there. Sounds good. Yeah, thank you so much. It's great to be here. Let's see, I'm Shay Strong. I'm the Vice President of Analytics at ISI. It's a relatively new role for me. I, I guess I'm coming up on my year anniversary. So I joined last November during COVID. But I guess in general, SAR is, is very new to me and, and ISI is all about SAR. But really before that, I came from an astrophysics background. So I got my PhD at the University of Texas in Austin, focusing on climatological studies of gas giant planets. And quite honestly, I had a pretty bad graduate school experience. I think I would say just maybe unmotivating and not a really good support group there. So I, I think I kind of came out of that wondering what else there was. I mean, I think there's a lot of value in research for, for research sake, but I think for me, I was looking for something more, maybe something more timely and applied and conveniently had a, a grad student office mate who got a job at Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Lab in Baltimore in the US. And she helped me get my foot in the door there. And I got to join a great team there working on developing national security space satellites and, and systems. Really good experience from kind of transitioning from, from this more academic community to a real world solution and, and you know, solving critical problems for, for specific applications. But then I, you know, I was there for maybe seven or so years. And, and I think my experience with kind of in that government contract space and, and government projects is, can be really hard for, for early career people to come in with really interesting, novel, agile ideas. I, I think there's a lot of legacy and, and maybe rightfully so, but, but it's, it's a bit of a challenge. And so I was looking for a new transition and I joined my first ever startup in Washington, D.C. called OmniEarth. And I became, this was 2014, and I became the first data scientist out of that org. And it was like around this time when, when the world was really uh, salivating over data scientists. And quite honestly, I had no clue <laughs> what a data scientist was. But come to find out, it's exactly what I tried to sell myself as 
leaving grad school. Like I can compute things and I can write code and I can analyze data and I can do observations. And, and really that's, that turns out to be a data scientist. And so I built that team there in DC, really focused on creating a solution around predicting water usage in the U.S., like very focused on, on southwestern part of the U.S. So using satellite and aerial imagery. And at the time, of course, like TensorFlow was being open source. There was a lot of great new deep learning research. And we were able to, to create some, some really nice cloud-based pipelines to extract information about land use, land cover, and then project water usage. And this turned out to be a really cool solution that targeted a specific need. And then that was a big success. And the, the company got acquired and I moved over from Washington, DC across the US to Seattle and joined a company called EagleView that was more focused on aerial imagery acquisitions, but also interested in these applied use cases of you know, how can you use imagery to extract meaningful information for insurance or government. And I was there for, for a period of time, built out a team of, of roughly maybe uh, 40 plus people kind of between India and the, and the US. And I got this amazing call that um, ISI was, was interested in speaking with me. And I was a little bit confused first over who, who ISI was and, and what they were trying to do. But the more I learned, the more I just got incredibly excited and motivated to join their team in Finland. So, so that was a pretty dramatic move for me. And, and that circles me back to, to here and now, and located in Finland and, and working to build the team at ISI on the solutions and, and analytics side. Wow, you, you have come a really long way. Would you mind just briefly clarifying for us, what is ISI and what, what do they do? Yes, yeah. I mean, ISI is a really interesting company. So, so foundationally, it's a synthetic aperture radar satellite company. So build and launch a constellation of small SAR satellites. So these are less than 100 kilograms in mass systems. So, so very agile, very small, relatively inexpensive. And the cool thing about ISI is that the, the founders came out of, like right out of university. Um, literally, the, the office is still on the university campus. And the founders, they, they were the first to ever miniaturize the SAR technology required for this domain. And incredibly novel because historically, like SAR has been around a while. I, I think you've definitely had other, other speakers comment to this previously, but well back into the 50s, like the technology has been there. It's been very government centric, but it's been big. <laughs> it's been massive. And so the founders, you know, revolutionized uh, the engine on the engineering side. We are now at a constellation of 14 small sets that are operational today in space. And then now, like where that leaves us as an organization is like, we don't want to just sell data, you know, sell pixels, sell images. I mean, I think that has a very specific market, but it, it can be a bit limiting. And then, you know, going to the other end of like, well, how can we better use the data to create solutions and essentially information that, that is useful in, in very specific avenues? So coming back to insurance and government, I think there's a lot of really historic use cases and needs there that, that are kind of built in rather static workflows that, I mean, to use the overused word of disrupted, <laughs> like there is a need for, for a bit of disruption here in terms of how can data better serve these end users in a way that reduces bias and scales the types of workflows and information that they find valuable. And also, on the customer side, like like builds trust between them and their customers. I think a lot of these processes are, are very subjected to just manual bias and uncertainty. So there's this big space that we just kind of collectively call solutions. And then there's this big opportunity with a bunch of imagery collected on, on from these SAR satellites. And then 
my job is how do we fuse those two and, and how can we make something valuable and useful and timely? You talked about not wanting to just sell pixels. So you're going to sell analysis or, or solutions or answers, I guess. I know that one of the things you're looking into is monitoring flooding. But I know also from a previous conversation that this is not as easy as someone like me might think. I'm wondering if you could talk us through that process. Why is it so difficult to monitor flooding? Yeah. And I mean, that, that's a really great question. I guess going back to like, you know, there, there's this, you know, maybe an, another time, another conversation, you know, there's this whole domain of SAR versus optical versus infrared. There's all these different modes in which you can observe the earth, right? They're different wavelengths. And if we look at flood, so so specifically, essentially any kind of natural catastrophe, there's a couple of of really interesting characteristics. They're they're often, you know, they often happen very fast. And it's a time series event. So for floods, I mean, it can be as fast as a flash flood that kind of happens in a, an hour or a couple of hours, all the way to like, you know, maybe a multi-week situation where the, a region is just inundated. So it's it's very much a time series event. But even beyond that, wildfires, you know, those are also very time series events. And so there's this constant change. And then if we now like try to marry, like how can I as a user of this information, if, if I wanted to understand regionally where were the regions that were most impacted? Where were the structures or the houses or the buildings or the roads that, that were the most damaged? You know, how can I observe that? And then so now we can get married to satellites. So remote sensing, can we observe these situations? And, you know, the advantage that, that SAR has is that, especially like on the ISI side, these are microwave radar satellites. So being an active system, we can use this system day and night, and we can also penetrate through atmospheric contamination, like weather, clouds, smoke, haze, all these things. And so now like to capture the time series domain of these different situations, like SAR becomes really beneficial in ways that traditional optical or, or infrared are really challenged where they can't see through clouds or haze or smoke. So there's a nice marrying of the data source to the need of, of just understanding the impact. But then there's a lot of additional compounding factors of like, well, imaging it isn't good enough, you, you still have to do a lot of additional data assimilation and you need ground truthing and you need ways like, like you can't just invent a solution. You also have to figure out how to ingest it into a, a customer's workflow and, and how to make them use it. So there's a lot of these additional components that, that come out of that later on. So you, you talked about this idea of not wanting to just sell pixels. You want to sell something else. Perhaps you want to do some analytics on top of the data you're collecting. Maybe you want to supply an answer to, to the user, to the customer. What does that mean in, in terms of flooding? So when you think about monitoring flooding, what do you have to do to be able to monitor flooding, to be able to provide that end answer to someone who's asking the question, is flooding happening here and how much is happening here? That's a great question. And, and I think, it, as it turns out, it's a, it's a pretty complicated one to answer. And I think we're still learning. But you know, going from just pixels where, where there's already you know, rather complex information, especially from, from a radar image, to going to deliver a solution. Like, where, where was the flood? And how deep was the flood? Like, turns out to be this, this pretty big journey. And so what we do today is, you know, we have a large team that mobilizes around identifying, like, where do we think a flood will happen? And I think this is like represented fundamentally a, a big inflection point for us, where last year, we had kind of of the mindset of like, oh, we'll wait for somebody to task us. We'll, we'll wait for somebody to say that they're interested in a city or a location. But it turns out like people always like take too long <laughs> to, get, to get to that. And by the time they actually say they're interested in something, like we've missed 
the event or we've missed the opportunity to provide insight. And so how we got in front of that is by creating this pretty comprehensive solution, which involves meteorologists, it involves ops and analysts, and it involves machine learning. But fundamentally, the, the first part is pull in a bunch of third-party data about weather, forecasts, population, and then you know, get kind of situational awareness of, of where an, a flood might happen. And then, you know, once we have that information to our best knowledge, we can, you know, conveniently, we own the constellation of 14 satellites. So we can say, okay, automatically go task these locations and target this time frame. We think the peak of the event based on precipitation or, or whatever the situation is. We, we think the event will happen at this time. And then there's a little bit of a finger crossing. Like you do hope that you capture the peak. You know, the intent with the peak capture is like, you know, that's hopefully more or less the deepest flood. I, I think we constantly learn new things. So that's not always the case, but, but you really hope you have the most amount of information you, you can have for that situation. And then we can start an activation process where it's a semi-automated approach, which does require like probably weighed more on the manual side right now than on the automated side. But, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a process that like within 24 hours of that peak capture, we have to turn around what is the flood extent and what is the flood depth. And it turns out that that information is, is really important in those first 24 hours for whether it's government response. So like in the U.S. with, with FEMA, for instance, being able to send the right kind of assets or, or help in situations or, or maybe an insurance carrier that's trying to assess you know, the damage for, for the clients that they have. And so that, that's where we are today. And then and constantly trying to figure out how can we be faster and more strategic about what we're doing and, and the types of data that we're leveraging, because it's, it's not just SAR, it turns out. SAR is useful, of course, as a foundational layer because of the being able to see through, through clouds and have kind of a persistent monitoring capability. But you also need a lot of other things, a lot of other, you know, you need building information, you need digital terrain maps, and that together creates this comprehensive solution. Could you talk about the role of these other things, the DTMs that you were talking about, the, the building information? What does that mean for you in terms of figuring out if there's a flood and, and how deep it is? Yeah, I mean, it, it turns out that the high quality digital terrain maps are like imperative to get that three-dimensional aspect of the, the flood depth. And, and in fact, like, I, I mean, maybe even taking a step back, like any SAR product where you need to take a pixel from a SAR image and geo-register it to a point on the earth, like is only as good as the DTM, <laughs> really. And, and then it turns out like DTMs are really expensive, especially good ones. And many different countries and, and sometimes, you know, within a country, there might be multiple different organizations that acquire this data and they can, you know, resell it. Sometimes it's open source, but it, it's just everybody's different. Every country is different. And, you know, finding that, curating that, organizing it and making it efficiently queryable is one of the biggest headaches that, that we have. And so putting a lot of infrastructure around finding the best data is, is one of the really important bits. And from a fundamental level, the, the terrain map itself is giving you the information as to like, what is the gradient of the earth? Like, like how steep or how shallow is it? And, and as we start generating flood output, like if we suddenly are presented with a digital terrain map that's maybe 30 meters in resolution, you know, there's each cell, each pixel in that digital terrain map can be, you know, with, you know, cover a 30 meter area. And, and if you're talking about now putting that cell in the middle of a city, there's a huge amount of variability that could happen, especially if there happens to be a lot of hills or a lot of mountainous areas or, or valleys or whatever the case is. And so you can imagine 
when you try to then model flood or you try to then map those features onto that earth surface, like there, there's just a tremendous amount of uncertainty in general. And so again, th this is one of the most important data sources that we have. And then buildings, of course, I think there's so many amazing open source building data sets now, even in the last just two or three years. But still, you know, <laughs> one of the greatest unsolved mysteries, I think, of the geospatial world is like getting all these different data layers to fall in the right place on Earth at the same time. <laughs> I think there's, there's always this co-registration, what we call a co-registration problem, and nobody solved it. At the risk of, of using a really bad pun, so let, let's say we had the perfect storm. Let's say we had that you, you survived the logistic nightmare, which I'm sure tasking satellites can be. You know, so you, you're trying to find a slot in your schedule. Where do we have capacity to take an image of, of this flood? And that's assuming that you can accurately predict where the flood is going to happen, where this, this peak flood event is going to be on the world, that you can point your SAR sensor towards it, capture an image of it. And I guess that's also assuming that you have all these data sets available so you can begin processing and trying to determine if the flood is happening and, and if it's the peak event that you're hoping to capture. How do you ground truth that? Ground truthing is definitely a huge challenge. And Right now, like, I, I mean, I think there, there are very reliable sources in certain locations. <laughs> so river gauges or tidal gauges even can give you those in situ observations of what was the depth or the water height at, at this point at this time. But the, the caveat is that it's always already in a body of water. <laughs> so where we really need the ground truth is in the city streets or on a building or you know, in, in other places where water is not normally found. And, you know, often what we result to is developing a social media pipeline that goes and, and does a huge amount of open source data pulling, you know, whether that's you know, just Google searching, first of all, or YouTube videos, or honestly, TikTok, or, you know, anything where anybody has posted some kind of evidence of flood. And we have a workflow spun up to use that information as an auxiliary kind of ground truth data point. But as you can imagine, like, like if you think about opening a YouTube video where somebody has captured flooding in their street, you have to geolocate that information and you have to timestamp that information because, by the way, none of that information is usually available with these, with these data sources. And so there's you know, still, still a lot of opportunity for uncertainty and bias. So I think it's safe to say there's often not ground, ground truth or, you know, it's, it's okay. It's something that we can point to, but it is a big challenge. And, and that's actually an area that, that we're also interested in exploring of like, how can we, you know, maybe there's an other network of sensors that we could create and deploy to, to help improve the ground control points for some of these solutions. You hit the nail on the head here. I was just thinking of this, an, another network. And I'm thinking a great network would be the people that are already there. And so the idea of the, the human in the loop, so you, you've made all these really smart estimates. We think it's going to happen here. We have the data to, to create the analysis we're interested in. And this is all automated. And I can see that the, the attraction here is the scale that you could achieve with this, I guess. But do you think this is going to totally remove the humans? Like, could you imagine a situation where you could contact that person on social media or contact people in the village and say, hey, look, uh, I think there's flooding happening. <laughs> could you verify that? Do you even see a place for humans in, in this loop? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's a brilliant question. Like, I think we can never get rid of humans in this loop. And, and it's funny, like, to be completely transparent, like, not too long ago, I, I, you know, joining some of these startups where 
the investors only wanted to hear about automation. Like, oh, you're going to build a machine learning team and, and automate everything. And now we can, you know, reduce this labor force entirely and, and scale things up, you know, many orders of magnitude. And that's fundamentally not how it works. Like, like it, it just doesn't. And I would honestly like, you know, <laughs> pose a provocative thought. Like, I would love to see where that has actually been a success because I, I don't think you can get rid of the human. I think there's ways to augment the workflow and the solution to make it maybe more efficient and effective and, and switch how you use humans. But especially coming back to flood, like I, I think having that subject matter expertise is, is imperative. And, you know, I have this dream world, like honestly, it starts feeling like I'm just reinventing things that already exist, like, um, you know, OpenStreetMap or, you, you know, the, there's, there's, you know, so many other open source communities where people are providing information from, from apps and basically doing crowdsourcing. And, but this world of where, like, we could just have a, a very specific ISI app that's just like, hey, <laughs> at this point, you know, give us, you know, we'll take your lat long if it's okay with you and, and we can measure the depth right now. And by the way, cell phones have come a long way. So you can pretty easily use the embedded sensor technology in, in phones that are pretty ubiquitous at this point and kind of get a better measurement than what we're doing. And that just like opens up an amazing capability. I think the challenge is then like, you know, if you build a workflow based on humans and, and based on their input or, or weighting that workflow substantially on the human input, you are kind of subjected to the whim of the humans. And I, and I think that's the scary part of, you know, having humans in the loop. But like, how can you reliably, you know, scale or use those resources and knowledge effectively? And, and I don't know if, if there's an answer to that, but I do think it's, it's a critical part and, you know, it's something that, that we definitely recognize. And it's honestly going to differentiate the types of solutions that, that we can provide versus what others have, have already tried. So please don't misunderstand me here. Like, I'm really excited about this kind of technology. I see it providing a lot of answers and maybe even generating a lot more questions, you know, when we can do this kind of thing on a regular basis and know that it's working. Again, really, really excited about it. Who is the incumbent here? So is it the, the humans? Is it, you know, a human going down to the river and saying, yes, it's flooding. Because that's how, I guess that's how we've been doing it for a long time. Is that still what's happening now? Is this the competition that a system, a technology like what you're building is facing? Or are we solving two very, very different problems here? I don't think it's different. I, I mean, I, I think they're very complementary. And, and I'm trying, trying to think of the, the best way to answer this. I mean, part of it is like, like that's essentially what some of these organizations are doing now, right? They, after an, an event happens, you know, a flood for lack of other events, they send a group of people out to go try to estimate where was the, the deepest flood, which properties had the most impact. And, you know, usually, like, like I would say, most of this assessment happens after the fact. I mean, hopefully people are evacuated during these events. And so there's, there's probably not as much real-time real info as, as there could be. And then I think, you know, where we're trying to get with a solution is like, you know, how can we expedite that information and broaden it so that you're not maybe reliant on a dozen people wading their way through kind of a disaster strewn urban environment, but rather like, let's bring the perspective and then like, you know, speed up like how we respond to that. And so I think there's an opportunity where the, where the two can definitely benefit from each other. And it's like, how can we le leverage that effectively in a way that makes sense? And, 
capitalize on the information that that boots on the ground could provide but but you know maybe go a little bit faster or or look beyond where you know humans humans have access to if that makes sense so let's assume again that the stars aligned and you you could task the satellites you had all the data that you needed everything worked out fine you collected the data at peak flood it was brilliant what would the output of that be would you be able to measure like the depth at different places in the flood in, in the water body what kind of spatial resolution could we expect in terms of how, how detailed can you map the, the edge of the water that, that kind of thing so our product today is a three-dimensional product so it's you know it's the latitude longitude extent and then it's the depth that is really driven by that underlying terrain model and then in terms of resolution like you know we really want to push the resolution to be as close to our highest resolution SAR product as, as possible so our highest resolution spotlight mode for instance is 0.25 meters per pixel and so relatively high resolution enough to get a lot of information about a specific structure or differentiate structures from each other and then like you know where we want to go with this is like well we have the SAR as that quantifiable imagery layer where we can send people to validate or we can take measurements to validate and where like there's an interesting opportunity to push that even further with like starting to incorporate hydrological modeling or other ways to kind of analyze how does the event change over time so how does that depth vary and how granular can you go in terms of your accuracy with that and and I think there's a lot of questions we we don't have the answers to one of the things we struggle a lot with especially on the resolution is you know we have clients who they sit in countries you know many many time zones removed from us and you know they they kind of have a, a limit of of what they consider flood and and you know around you know 40 45 centimeters like flood no flood i mean it's it's a rather kind of binary assessment and and there's a lot of uncertainty that that comes into play at you know say 40 centimeters like you know if somebody had put on their property a, a flood defense like a, some kind of wall or some kind of garden structure who who knows what like a, a slight step or patio like that's enough to d detract or, or d discourage 40 centimeters worth of water and and what we struggle with is like the desire for information is at that level if somebody walked out of that house would you be right <laughs> at 40 centimeters and then you know from our perspective well, we we can't tell you what flood defenses people have from you know orbit uh, around the Earth. That that's a that's a bit of a challenge. And you know how do we meet in the middle and and drive closer to that answer? And and I think that's something we're still trying to figure out. Is that something you could also in, incorporate into your models? Like when you're trying to determine if a flood event is going to happen, I guess there there must also be some sort of estimation about the severity of that expected event, and perhaps combining that with okay, well, what do we know? We could look at the the topography, for example, and say that in itself could be you know a flood protection mechanism, and start making sort of assumptions like we are only interested in capturing things that we think are going to be significant, or this community has already said this is significant for us. Fifty centimeters of water lying everywhere is significant. There's a lot a lot of content in there to unpack. I think one of the things that we've been wrestling with is you know exactly the point of is it worth activating against. I mean, like, as I, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, like this process comes with a significant labor cost. Like, you know, we can automate parts of it, but not everything. And so there's still a lot of humans in the loop. And so, you know, when we look at, you know, globally, we might review 10 or 15 different places on earth a day that is having some kind of flood event. We can't do all of them at once yet. <laughs> so, so like, what is the most important one? What is the one that can 
provide the most insight to a community or to a customer or, or whatever the case is. There's some interesting you know, locations in India, for instance, which flood relatively regularly, like through the monsoon season. And it, in essence, become like a way of life for people. Like there's just an expectation that annually or multiple times a year, you're going to have these massive raging floods through the city environments. And then, you know, taking a step back and figuring out, well, like, so is our assessment of a flood in a region like that, that is more or less mentally prepared for it, is, is that valuable? Versus maybe another community that is less prepared or is very flash flood prone and doesn't have the defenses to respond to it effectively from a humanitarian aspect. I don't know that there's a good solution here. I mean, I think unfortunately or fortunately, I'm not sure, we, we have to make money, <laughs> you know, at some level, like we have to figure out who's going to buy it. Like, you know, there, there's a huge value here, obviously, for, you know, a kind of a broader humanitarian aspect. But at the end of the day, we, we do kind of have to balance that with paying salaries. And so, you know, looking at the spread of all of these different events and, and where do we think the market would be interested in consuming that information versus like, like where is it just like critical to, to tackle? And we literally have stand-ups and stand-downs every single day that are supposed to be like 15 minutes long. And inevitably, they become a bit of these, I would say, uh, jovial, combative, what we should do. And, and it just, I think, is a reflection of where we are as we are evolving with this process. Let's talk about this. Who, who's buying this thing? Because it seems to me that you have this immensely complicated but exciting process, right? And I'm sure that you're going to continue to refine things, make it better, speed up the process, that kind of thing. So first question, who's buying it? And is it difficult to sell it to them? Because I, I guess you're showing up with a pocket full of magic and saying, here, I can do this. You know, like, how, how, does, that, <laughs> how does that work? This is like the story of my professional career. And, and I, I think like, I mean, if... If I can see, like, like at ISI, if we can be successful such that we start having recurring clients, where we basically take an analytics-driven product and turn it into a fully scalable production solution, like, I feel like I could retire a happy woman. <laughs> but, but like, I, I, that is such a challenge. And I, and I also, like, maybe fighting words, I'm sure, in different domains, I don't think it's been done yet successfully, short of you know, maybe recommending movies or recommending shoes to buy or whatever the case is. And so, you know, when I look at our flood solution today, we're targeting government first responders and we're targeting insurance. And there's a huge potential need there. And we even get that. Like we, we're, I, would, I would say we're kind of in this limited release phase of, of the development that we've done of the methodology where we're working really closely with several handpicked insurance clients that are very invested in this. And, and so much so that, you know, it's, it's a challenge because on one hand, it's exciting that they're helping drive some of the, the technology development and that they're super invested. But on the other hand, they, they do want us to conform to their previous mindsets. And I think like, you know, we, we often get in these situations where at the end of the day, they're comparing us to claims, which can be a big challenge because we can't predict who's going to claim damage happened. You know, for all the, the, the reasons I mentioned earlier, like there might be a flood defense we don't know about, or, or maybe somebody didn't pay their bill and therefore they don't want to file a claim. You know, we don't know. There, there's a psychological aspect to it. And when we're working with some of these clients, they're, they're very much focused on like, 
what was the reality? For them, the reality is who filed a claim and, and to take an analytics product and, and validate it against that, you know, we get in these very circular discussions that are a challenge to, to bridge the gap. And I do still think there's a tremendous market there. I think we're getting traction, but the adoption, the customer adoption and customer integration will be the biggest challenge and will probably be I don't know, to use the weird, like the, the longest pole, <laughs> like developing the technology, like, oh, we can grasp, we can evolve, we can iterate, we got a handle on, but like getting people to use it, getting it in their system and, and getting them to consistently purchase it. That is the, the big problem. It's really interesting. That was going to be my next question. So I see a lot of these problems as, you know, if you had to split them up into two very broad buckets, perhaps you could say a technical problem and a cultural problem. And I was going to ask, if I could solve one of those problems for you, which one would it be? And it sounds like you would solve the cultural problem because you're confident that you'll get there with the, with the technology. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's the cultural. And, and, and then cultural is like super weighted. Like it, it's cultural from an industry perspective. You know, like I, I think, well, in, in the US, I mean, insurance has kind of had these processes in place for 30, 40 years. I'm not sure about, you know, other countries, but, you know, you're competing with cultural mindsets that, that are just very, like, kind of baked in everybody's career that's there now. And, and so there's that aspect. And, and then there's the cultural side of just, like, how do different clients in, in these, you know, largely insurance or government, like, from a literal cultural perspective, what is important to them? Is it saving money? Is it more about customer like retention or make, making their customers happy or, you know, by being fast, like culturally, like, like what is important to them as an institution, as a society, from a business perspective and, and all those things, if, if everything was just technical, like that would be way easier. <laughs> Spoken like a true data scientist. <laughs> So other people are in the in, in the situation, right? So they've got this amazing piece of technology and they're confident they can it's either in a place now where it's production ready or they can get it to a place where it's production ready, where it can solve a very real problem. And now they're facing that cultural, that that marketing problem. If you had to give those people some advice, what 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 would you say to them, like based on your experience? Yeah. What would I say to them? I mean, I, I think the big thing is, you know, find a friend in the market that you're trying to go into. I think, you know, I've worked with some, some really brilliant organizations that have developed killer apps from a technology perspective. Like they've made these beautiful platforms or they've made these beautiful cloud pipelines that are super effective and super, you know, efficient. But then at the end of the day, like nobody's using the data because it's not answering the right questions or it just leaves a lot open. And, and so I really do think it's about building thoughtfulness and expertise specific to that domain. And maybe that means like hiring insurance or government people as part of your organization, but just, I don't know, like, like finding an opportunity to sit down and, and really get to know it. Maybe, you know, maybe people do this already, but, but I, I think fundamentally that's still somehow missing, like, or maybe still going after things that are sexy and, and exciting. You know, when you think about all the beautiful platforms that people are kind of promoting around, you know, querying the earth and making the earth searchable and and it tells a beautiful marketing story. You know, it's easy to open a web browser and, and look at imagery and, and kind of, you know, you equate it to Google searching and, and, and suddenly like, oh, there, there has to be tons of use cases. But the reality of it is like that alone doesn't address anything. It doesn't necessarily address a need. And, 
So it's getting like really getting in cozy with the domain that you're going after and being specific. Stop being so broad. Like I think not every problem is a big data problem or a big scale problem. Sometimes it's smaller scale in terms of of what you're targeting that can then lead you to solving bigger problems. Jay, I really want to thank you for your time. I, mean, I love the way you show up. You're, I can feel the excitement when I talk to you. And it's, it's, just, you're, yeah, it's just magical talking to you. I really enjoyed the conversation. I appreciate talking to people that are simply so passionate about what they do. It's great. If somebody's listening to this and they think, how can I reach out to Shay? How can I get in touch with, with ISI? How can I follow along with, with what they're up to? Where should they go to be able to do that? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Twitter, I, w- I would argue, is maybe the best to reach me. So, so Shay be strong at, uh, at Twitter. And then we, of course, have a web presence, an ISI web presence. But I think Twitter, again, is, is the good result. I think that's where like, the interesting pieces of information come out. You know, it, it moves it away a little bit from the salesy side and, and maybe makes it more tangible. So that's what I would advocate for. Thanks again for your time. I love talking with you. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. Definitely the best interviewer I've ever had. (laughs) 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 So I really hope you enjoyed that discussion with Shay Strong from iSci. I'll put a link to her Twitter profile in the show notes to make it a little bit easier for you to find. So I have to say, I really enjoyed this conversation with Shay. I really like understanding about how these processes work, the different steps that involve. So I I tend to focus on the technical side of things because, again, I'm I'm fascinated by it. I find it really, really interesting. But more and more, I'm getting equally interested in the business side of it. So great, so we've got this amazing technology. How do we sell it? Is it actually going to make a difference? Are people going to buy it? And I really appreciate Shay's open and honest discussion around that side of it. And interesting enough, it wasn't the technical challenges that Shay was facing, and, and there are a lot of them. She was confident that her and her team at ISA, they, they can solve those challenges, they can move forward. It was the cultural challenge that Shay described as being the, that long pull, as that the hardest bit of, of this. And I, I guess if we sort of zoom in a little bit, the cultural challenge was bringing change to the market, asking people to change. So asking people change is one thing. And of course, we've all heard that that saying, no one got fired for buying IBM. And you could just as well say, you are more likely to get fired for taking a risk, for being open to change. So I, I think we understand that there is a risk involved with, with change, with innovation, with doing something new. But I, I think there's something else here too. And I think it's the understanding of what is it people are buying? What, what, what do they actually want? So when I, when I listen to people like Shay, people that are building amazing, innovative products and technologies and services, firstly, I'm completely blown away. But when I hear her talk about the challenges of bringing this to market, understanding what it is people are actually going to put money on the table and say, yes, I will have some of that. I, I can't help but wonder if we are in the business of selling cars to people that are actually looking for faster horses. And if we are, well, that might be okay. I mean, it worked out really, really well for the Ford Motor Company. I just hope that Shay and, and pioneers like Shay take a deep breath. I hope they make it work. I hope they keep pushing forward. I think it would be fantastic to have some examples out there where we could point to and say, hey, look, it's working over there. I wonder if we had enough great examples of this working in the wild, if we might end up in a situation where companies and organizations and industries were eager to change as opposed to needing to be convinced to change. 
That's it for me. That's it for another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. It's much appreciated. If you have any questions, comments, if you want to reach out to me for whatever reason, feel free to do so. You can find me on social media at Mapscaping on Twitter, and there'll be a link to my LinkedIn profile in the show notes of this episode. Otherwise, if email is your thing, info at Mapscaping, send me a thoughtful email. I will send you a thoughtful response. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. See you next week. Bye.